Hey everyone, you are listening to Que Sera Sera with me, Sarah Ann Lalonde. I am a brand new teacher sharing my journey into education with the world, all while promoting risk-taking in the classroom and in your professional life. Enjoy this episode. You're listening to episode 66, Undisrupted Learning with John Harper. It is my absolute honor to be speaking with the host of the My Bad podcast. His name is John Harper, and he's joining me all the way from Maryland tonight. He was actually recently mentioned on one of my previous episodes with Joshua Stamper from the Aspire podcast, Um, but John is also co-host to a second podcast, which is called Teacher's Aid, and he does that with Mindy Frolic. But tonight, he's switching gears. Uh, He's sitting back and hopefully going to thoroughly enjoy being a guest on my podcast. So good evening, John. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for having me on. It is nice to turn the tables today. You can ask me whatever questions you want. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of fun. Uh, I haven't decided whether I like being a guest or a host more on podcasts. What about you? Let's see. I think think because I've I've hosted enough that I think being a host is easier and that I just ask a couple questions and then feed off of their answers. Whereas being a guest, I actually have to produce something that makes sense. You got to do all the work, eh? Or at least try to. Yeah. (laughs) I, uh, I've never had a bad guest, so, you know, I I like to like to pick the good ones. (laughs) I'll try to keep the streak going. Being as you uh, have your own podcast, I, I, fe- I felt as though you, you fit the mold well for this podcast, and I think that you have so much really cool insight to, uh, to bring to my listeners and, and just in general. I, I'm really excited to learn about you and just kind of chat it out. So since um, we are, this is the first time we really connect, so why don't you tell me a little bit about um, how you got into education and how you ended up being assistant principal. How did you get there? Because one day I hope to be there. So, Sure. I I actually got into education by accident. I was a philosophy major in undergrad, which sounds fun, but mm-hmm. I think we all know you can't really do a whole lot with a philosophy degree unless you teach. And you know, I had a really cool undergrad professor, so I thought, why not major in philosophy? And then I graduated and realized I couldn't do anything. So then I thought I wanted to be a doctor because my dad was a doctor. And so I took some pre-med courses and took the MCAT and applied to a medical school. But there was about a six-month waiting period. And during that time, I really didn't have much to do. So my mom said, why don't you substitute teach down the street? And I thought she was out of her mind. I thought, no, mom, that's not something I want to do at all. But you know, I was living at home. I was living for free. So I thought, you know, I got to make some money. And so I started substituting. And I absolutely loved it. I mean, it was... It was hard. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life, but it was an absolute blast. And when I didn't get into med school, I decided, you know what, I'm going to go back and get a teaching degree. And I did. And at that point, there wasn't anything in my area that would have allowed me to get like an MAT. So I had to go back and get a second bachelor's degree in elementary education. But it was it was a lot of fun. It took like two or three years. And it was a blast. And so I started teaching second graders. And the class that I had my very first year, I think this was 19, wow, 1997. <laughs> Holy cow. I was, I was three. You don't need to tell me that. 
1997. And actually one of those students, two of those students in my first class are actually teachers in the county where I work. And one of them actually is a teacher in the school where I'm wow. a principal. But I, I started off teaching second grade and then first, and then I kind of went to fifth grade pretty much for the rest of my teaching career. I taught 10 years and then I was a math coach for about three years. And right around my 10th or 11th year, I started thinking maybe I want to get into administration because I, I just saw the impact that you could have on a larger group of people. Mm-hmm. And I started to apply. And after a couple of years, I got a job as an assistant principal at the school where I was a math coach. And I was assistant principal there, I think, for about three or four years and then got moved to a different school where I am now. And this is like my fourth year as an assistant principal and loving it. I work with great people and a great leader and just very lucky to have this opportunity every day. Oh, sorry. Cut out there just for a second. I saw that there's some, but no, I'm just, I'm just lucky to have the opportunity every day to work with the people that I do. It's a great, it's a great job. Yeah. So you started out I, in my mind, I was like from philosophy major to second graders, <laughs> what, was it like kind of changing your mindset? You know, I, I feel as though if you pursued a BA in philosophy, it is something you're very passionate about. So how did you kind of switch your, your mindset to go into a second grade class? Or did you bring things from your first degree into the, into the classroom? You like, know, that's really interesting. No, I, I I wish I had, to be honest with you, I wish I had a cool answer to this. But the, the real answer is I majored in philosophy because it only required taking eight courses. And there was a really cool professor that I thought was awesome at lectures. So it was a very, very bad reason to major in philosophy. I enjoyed it. But mm-hmm. it was a very, I wouldn't say easy major because the things we had to read and write about were difficult. Yeah. But then... I mean, it, it, it makes you think and reflect a lot. So I guess the connection to education is constant reflection with philosophy. And then I got into the classroom and substitute teaching is like no other beast. I mean, I learned more substitute teaching in a year than probably my three years in education combined because when you're in the classroom, especially as a substitute or when you're in there by yourself, what you do has to work. It can't just sound good. It, it actually has to work. And so- yeah. I learned different, I learned what to do, what not to do. And, and it's actually, trial by fire, honestly. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I bombed so many times and the school where I substitute is actually the school where I'm assistant principal now. So it's kind of full circle. <laughs> that is, that's the cool part of that story. That's amazing. Did you ever, you know, throughout you, you said that you're teaching for 10 years. What made you want to make that switch into administration? Did you have good mentors or was it more you wanted to start being the change yourself? I think it was, some of it is probably, I wanted, I wanted to be able to impact more people. Okay. Like I had, I had worked with a young gentleman's club. In other words, I started what was called a young gentleman's club, maybe my sixth year teaching. And that's where I took about 20 to 25 fourth and fifth grade boys and just tried to help them become better young men and reach their full potential. And experiences like that helped me see that, you know what, I can make a bigger impact on people, not just my homeroom. And I mean, that in itself is a lot, but I think I started to get the itch for it 
then. And I, I never thought I would. I remember when I first started teaching, I was getting ready to get my master's and it was just going to be, I think, in general studies or something that didn't have any specificity to it. And the principal I was working for said, John, get your admin, get your master's in administration, because that way, at least if you decide down the road, you want to do that, then you'll have that option. And I'm glad I did. And it took a couple years after applying and looking into things. And then I ended up being the assistant principal where I was the math coach, which was which was pretty cool because I knew the staff and I knew the students mm-hmm. and they all knew me. So it was, it was a nice transition. That's so, I, I love that. Um, so this year you're, you're in your school. How many years have you been uh, working as an admin in the school that you are now? This is, I think my, I think my fifth year, fourth fifth or fifth year. Okay. Is it like in Canada where, or at least in in Ontario, or at least in my region in Ontario, once you, you hit a certain amount of years, you have to go, do you have to switch schools can, or can you stay admin in a school for a, a long period of time? No, there's no, there's no set rule. You, you can stay. I'll be honest in the County where I work, there have been folks that have been principal at a school for 20 years. Wow. Okay. And Cause I feel as though we try and there's lots of new waves and they, and they try and bring change into schools just to, you know, change things up. And I'm going into a school where there, there is a new admin and, as a new teacher, I, I'm super excited because, you know, everybody's kind of starting off on the same playing field as in lots of things are going to be changed. And so seeing as though it's your fifth year at the same school that you're at, what kind of goals or what kind of changes are you looking to implement in your school this year? We are really looking at focusing more or let me go backwards. Okay. About two years ago, we had a really difficult time with management. There were a lot of discipline issues. And last year, we worked really hard to curb that, to set the expectations, to set the bar high. And we did a really good job with that. And as a result, achievement improved a little bit. And this year, we want to take it a step further. We feel like we have the classroom management, the behaviors, the expectation where we want them. So we want to be in the classroom more and to help teachers with engagement, with, you know, developing lessons that are really going to capture kids' interests. And so my goal is to be in the classroom more to help teachers, you know, kind of reach their full potential. It sounds kind of cliche, but I, that's what I was trained to do. That's what I enjoy doing. I mean, part of the job as assistant principal is you do have to deal with disciplinary measures a lot. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping this year there are fewer because we worked so hard last year to set the standard. And I think another thing, as you mentioned, this is my fifth year. I guess I mentioned, but this is my fifth year in the same school. The good part of that is that I have relationships with a lot of the parents already. And a lot of the students have known me for four or five years. They know my expectations mm-hmm. and they know what to expect of me. So it's, that helps a lot. Okay. So what exactly did you guys do last year that worked so well in your school managing or at least setting those standards for the students? I think we were very consistent with our expectations. I think what can often happen is you can end up, and actually we had a speaker at my county today that talked about this. It's easy to be very inconsistent because sometimes you feel like you're giving a child a, a break 
by giving them some slack on different, maybe say misbehaviors or disrespect or certain things. And you say, you know what, you didn't mean it or this, that, or the other. And then the other kids see that. And Mm -hmm. then two or three kids in the room start doing that. And then four or five kids start doing that. And then all of a sudden the classroom and the school lose control. Whereas last year we set the standard right away. Whereas if someone's disrupting the classroom and the teacher's unable to handle it, you know, we, we would remove the student. We would, you know, call them. We met with a lot of parents. We would talk to the students, try to help them and teach them the proper ways to behave in class. And we basically wouldn't allow someone to be in the classroom if they were going to disrupt the learning. And that sounds simple, but it's, it's, it's easier said than done because it's, I mean, you want kids to be in the classroom because when they're not in there, they're not learning, obviously. But some kids, as I'm sure you've read and heard about, it's, you can't just tell a kid to behave better and they do it. You need to teach them, to talk them, talk with them. Of course, yeah. And we're very lucky. We have a, a family and student liaison and we have a social worker that have been very instrumental in our success and they help build relationships and they've helped with, you know, helping the kids take care of, you know, Maslow's basic needs. If it's mm-hmm. medical needs, if it's health, if it's whatever, they're, they're there for them. So I think, I guess we took care of Maslow the last couple of years <laughs> and now it. it's time and- to looking at bloom. So consistency is key. And this is for myself as a new teacher and and new teachers listening. And I'm sure just veteran teachers even reminding them. uh, I think that especially as somebody new coming into a building, into a classroom, um, you don't always want to be the bad guy. And like you, exactly like you said, I am, I will raise my hand first to say that I will be the first to like give kids breaks, but I also understand the impact of, of being consistent with, you know, my, in my classroom, I know I have one rule and it's just respect. It's very simple. And I think that is kind of the umbrella under lots of other things, but respect kind of, I only have the French word right now, englobes. It kind of takes everything else in and, and goodness, I, I've had a French day today, so I can't exactly choose the word but you know what I mean like if you just say respect there's lots of other things that fall into that so if that's the one main rule keep it simple right no that's the truth and it's a lot of times I think we feel like and I've been very guilty of this over my 21 20 I don't know how many years I've been doing 20 21 years of in education where you feel like you know you want to cut a kid a break Mm -hmm. but when you do that they feel like it's okay to say misbehave or, or do something like that and then when you do cut them that break, you're not preparing them for the real world. Yeah. And you still love the kid. You still give them every exactly. reason and you still help them. But we have to model for them what the r- real world is like. And if they always think that, you know, they're going to get by, then they're not going to, why would they improve? It's like if I'm uh-huh. driving down the highway and the cop always gives me a warning uh-huh. instead of a ticket, well, then I'm always going to speed. <laughs> but if the cop starts giving me tickets, I'm going to slow down. And so, you know what, they, we have to mean what we say. And and still love the kids, obviously, and they know that. And kids, kids want that structure, and they want that. Yeah, they, they want it. They they crave it because a lot of times they come from homes where they don't have it, and they're just testing us. I mean, they're kids, and just like adults, we test each other all the time with things, and it's Absolutely. they're no different than we are. They're better than we are to be honest with you. They're, they're a lot of fun. I love your analogy with the speeding, though, because again, I'm also guilty for that. I'm just like shaking my head over here, like, yep, yeah, no, he's. 
He's got it. So this year you're focusing on engagement in the classroom and and creating more lessons where students, um, I'm sure, can be more involved and, and feel like they are in control of their learning. So what does a, a good engaging lesson, what are what are some elements of a of an engaging lesson that you're looking for when you're when you're helping and mentoring teachers by, you know, like you said, to reach their full potential? I think one thing is kids need to have a lesson. It needs to be well thought out and prepared. Now, that doesn't mean I'm looking for a 10-page lesson plan. What I want to see is that the teacher has really thought about what is going to interest students, and it needs to have some real-world application. Mm-hmm. Because I always say, you know, we're competing with, with video games. We're competing with TV. We're competing with whatever else could be on a child's mind. And if we're not more interesting than that, at that moment, then we're not going to capture them. So I think I'm looking for teachers to try to connect the real world to what they're teaching. I also am looking for teachers to provide think time and quiet time and you know space. And that's something that we rarely have enough of. Usually it's, here's a question, give me some answers. I'm going to put the timer on you have five minutes. And I've done that a lot too, but oh, I think yeah, because you're talking about structure. Time. So you're talking about structure, and I'm trying to structure them with certain time, and I'm trying to, you know, not waste so much time in my in my class. So, can you break that down a little bit more? So, what does that that space and that time like look like? For example, when I teach, I would say, let's say I'm giving a math problem, and I would say, okay, here's here's the problem, and I've already modeled it. I've explained it. For the next five minutes, I'm not going to answer any questions. Okay. And at first, it's, it's really difficult for mm. students because they're conditioned to ask any question. And I'm condi- conditioned as a teacher. <laughs> I'm being paid to teach to answer the question. But unless, you know, I think it was Frederick Douglass said, if there's no struggle, there's no progress. And a lot of times we don't allow kids to struggle a little bit. And that's where those, those neurons, those connections are made and that growth is made. And let them struggle for four or five minutes. And what you'll find is a lot of times they're going to be able to find that answer on their own in that five minutes. It's a lot easier to answer that question. And they might wriggle around in their seat and they might be frustrated and they might have their head down. But at the same time, they're also thinking and grappling and struggling. And that's where the growth takes place. And that's where a good lesson comes in. That's actually, I think that's a highly engaged lesson. So when you go in there, you might not realize it, but if you see kids you know, thinking and maybe working in groups and talking and problem solving and having different ways at solving something, having different ways at sharing what they've learned. That's what I'm going to be looking for as well. Hmm. I really, really like that. And that's something I've never necessarily considered. And like you said, again, wanting to, you know, in the very traditional role as a teacher, you're there, your, your students have questions, you have the answer and you, you just not spoon, spoon feed them, but sometimes that's just what comes naturally. So having the time for them to struggle is so important. And I don't think that I would have necessarily focused on the struggling time, right? Like it's, I I feel like that's not a natural thing for us teachers to do is it maybe it's just me no it's not i mean because our kids <laughs> our kids aren't used to it because 
a lot of our kids and, and adults as well, we play video games or we have devices in which we can reset it right away. I mean, kids play games and if they die right away, they can reset it and they can reset it and oh. they can reset it. And they want that, they're conditioned to that constant, that constant dopamine hit and which the brain produces when it gets you know, something right or something correct, or it's like with our phones, when mm-hmm. we get a text or we get a notification, you get that little tiny dopamine hit. And so our kids aren't used to that. They're not used to four or five minutes of nothing. And so it, it does take practice. Sometimes it might even start with one or two minutes, depending on <laughs> what the age What do we level. do with our students Five, six, seven-year-olds, it might just be a minute. Aren't struggling. If it's, uh, you know, high school age or ninth and 10th graders, like I think you're going to be working with, then you might be able to give them 10 or 15 minutes. But it's important for them to have that time. We're back. It's important. Back. Sorry. Oh. It's important. It's important for them to have that time so that, I mean, they realize that it's not always easy, and they, they might not have the right answers. They might be wrong. But I used mm-hmm. to tell my kids, you know, hurry up and make mistakes because once you make mistakes, you realize what's not right, and then you can move on to narrowing it down and figuring out what is right. Well, well, I think I that think this, that is, this is, is a good, a good segue, segue into, into your podcast, seeing as though we're talking about mistakes, um, because your entire podcast talks about, well, it's more educators share things that they've learned through their own mistakes. So naturally, as educators, we make tons of mistakes. It's not only our students, but what is it about mistakes that wanted or that made you want to create a whole podcast focused solely on them? I think a couple things. I mean, I think when you look on social media, what you do, I mean, you see everybody's best. You mm, see amen. reels, you see airbrushed versions of this, you see everything looks nice and we compare ourselves to that. Or you'll look at someone's Facebook post and they'll say, I got up, I ran three miles, I did eight loads of laundry, I baked three trays of cookies, I did this and I did that, and it's just, it makes me sick. I don't, I mean, that, you know, that's nice, but I don't need to hear about it. And then, but what happens is then you compare yourself to that. And so I think some of it was that, but really it goes back to a story with my daughter when she was about seven or eight years old and I was watching her play soccer at a soccer practice one day and I'm watching from across the field. It's, it's a practice and they're scrimmaging one another and I'm looking over, and my daughter's playing defense, and everything's nice. It's a beautiful fall evening. I mean, everything was wonderful. And then all of a sudden, I look over, and I see my daughter score a goal for the other team. And I thought, mm-hmm. oh, gosh, this is going to mortify her. Because she's the only girl out there on the team, and this is her first year playing. And I really – I was worried because I thought, you know what? Is she going to want to quit? Is she going to want to say, Daddy, take me home? Daddy, I hate soccer. Is she going to be crying? I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And so it took a water break about five minutes later, and she's walking towards me. And I'm thinking, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? And she looks at me, and she says, Daddy, I too. I thought, what? And she says, Daddy, I too scored a goal for the other team. (laughs) And then it hit me, and I remember that I had shared with her a couple months earlier that when I was in high school, I scored a goal for the other team that lost our team the game in sudden death overtime. And I realized then the power in sharing mistakes, because if I hadn't shared that with her, she may have felt a lot worse about her mistake, but because she knew that her daddy made a mistake, 
she was cool with it. It wasn't that big a deal. And so it wasn't, it wasn't right after then that I had the idea for the podcast, but it kind of percolated for a while. And, you know, I, I had been blogging for BAM Radio, and then I, I brought the idea to the producers, the CEO of the show, um, of the uh, network, and they liked it. And I decided to have people on, and they come on, and they share one big mistake. And it's it's been a blast, and it's been an honor having people come on and trust me and being vulnerable with them with their mistakes. Absolutely. And it's such an out of the box type of podcast, right? I don't know anybody else that is hosting a podcast where, you know, people are sharing their mistakes. And I'm wondering, do you have a favorite mistake that somebody has shared with you? Like the, the ultimate mistake that, that has um, been recorded and that is now one of your episodes. Ooh. Because you have a lot. How many episodes do you have? Right. There's there's tons, oh. and they're they're short. And the one that's sitting on my, um, like in my tabs right now is with Daniel Jones. It says I was too focused on appearing to be a great teacher. Um, that that title really spoke to me. So it's it's waiting to be played here. <laughs> yes, he was. That was a very powerful episode. It's tough. I mean, it's. I guess I've had. I don't know how many probably over 120 episodes now, I would say. I don't know. It's been about three years. And when you say, uh, is there one that stands out? Do you mean by most? Either right. like like a powerful mistake, one that really spoke with you, one that a lot of educators could relate to. Like I know like they're all good, but maybe there's just one, like a funny favorite mistake that somebody shared with you. I don't know. <laughs> Let's see. Okay, because I got some are sad and some are ha- some are funny yes, and we some we could do happy and happy and funny. We'll keep it light. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay. Uh, Tony Vincent. I don't know. Tony Vincent is like a technology whiz. I don't know if you've heard of Tony Vincent, but he does a lot of stuff with tech. He's amazing. Okay. And when yeah. he was teaching in the classroom, he said he was very strict with rules. He had this certain set of rules, and kids had to follow them, and he was a very strict disciplinarian and he was sitting there at his desk one day and all of a sudden this kid comes up to him. His mouth is closed. His cheeks are kind of puffed up and he hands him this note and he, he left it there for a minute and then he looked over and he looked up and the kid was still there and he figured, well, I better read this note. And so he opened up the paper and it said, Mr. Vincent, can I go to the bathroom? I've just thrown up in my mouth. Oh my said he could not believe because later on he asked the kid why didn't you just go and he said well you told us we have to raise our hand and we're not allowed to use the bathroom without permission and oh. he could he could not believe it he thought i've got to change my ways i can't be that strict that a kid who is thrown up feels like they have to close their mouth and raise their oh hand and write a note before they even go to the bathroom and so he was like there is no way and he's a totally different person now. I mean, that, that's what I find with a lot of the episodes is that there's, there's turning points, there's moments that just change people and they realize that it's a journey. I mean, it, it's a journey that you're going to see because I think you're heading into your first year, correct? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and I mean, what I've found is that the people, what's, what's so powerful about the folks when they come on my bed is that they're willing to be vulnerable and share mistakes and they're not the same person they are now that they were then, but rarely on social media do we get to see the journey in between. And that's the one thing when folks come on, we get to hear about the in between. And that's the part that I think is missing a lot. 
Mm-hmm. And that's that failure or that, you know, the failure, the mistake, however you want to word it is kind of the, the struggle part that we were just talking about, you know, and that's where a lot of the, the reflection comes in afterwards and, and then change is made. And I think what you're doing by offering educators to come onto your podcast and, and share these things and props to everybody who is willing to, you know, make public, a story like that, you know, that it just like, it blows my mind. And I'm, that's why I'm really excited to listen to, um, Daniel Jones to see how, you know, I can maybe learn from his mistake, but having you offer educators the opportunity to, to think and, and reflect about a mistake. I think that's just powerful. Like I was on a podcast with Noah Daniel. She does the personal playlist podcast, the P3. And you have to pick um, a song that motivates you, a song that represents who you are, and a nostalgic song. And it's kind of cool as a guest. It's I almost think it's the same process, just thinking and reflecting on either a mistake or songs and, and being more introspective. Like I wouldn't have done that if it wasn't for, you know, Noah's podcast or I'm sure Josh, when he was on your podcast, wouldn't have necessarily thought about his biggest mistake and went into this big reflective, um, you know, journey to, to share with that story with you. So I think that it's just really powerful what you're doing and sharing that with the world. I'm sure like, what is the feedback that you get from the educators either that are listening or that actually come on the podcast with you? Well, that's, that's a good point. A lot of the educators I've heard recently, they say, they say it's very cathartic Okay. When they come on and when they share that mistake, it's sort of just it like they can breathe again. Hmm. Like, uh, Interesting. Maggie Bellato came on. She was one of my very first guests. She's a teacher in Texas. And she said one of my favorite quotes from my bad. She says, you know, once you share the mistake, it no longer holds power over you. It no longer. Oh. In other words, once, mm-hmm. once the words leave your mouth, it no longer has power over you. And it's so true. But it's so difficult to have them leave your mouth. I mean, when she came on, she shared a really painful but powerful mistake that took a lot of courage to share. But, you know, she's a different person now. And it's what's been amazing is some of the folks that have come on have shared mistakes. And when when, when I hear them and when listeners hear them, they're mistakes that people would never believe they would have made. And they're in sort of their they make mistakes in areas in which they're incredibly strong now. It's it's like their strength now. For example, Eric Schenninger came on mm-hmm. and he is, you know, a digital pioneer. He's written so many books about that. He's changed a lot of the way we look at technology and education, but he came on and talked about when he was a principal, he was the one who wrote the no cell phone policy. And he was the one who would walk around high school taking people's devices Wow. And people, you know, some of the kids told him that they felt that the school was like a jail because of him. Oh. And yet, this is this is Eric, the same I've guy who seen Eric in person. Yeah. yeah, he spoke at a conference I went to. Amazing, amazing human being. As if. Yeah, I mean, you would never guess that, but that that's that's the cool thing that they come on and they share these mistakes, and we realize because see a lot of people, not a lot, some people hear my bad and they say, you know what, it's good for others to learn from the mistakes, and that's true. But for me, that's a secondary goal of my bad. The, the primary goal was I want people to realize that they're not alone in making these mistakes and that anybody can make them. I mean, my, my very first guest was Todd Whitaker, which was amazing. He came on and he talked about a time where he lost his temper 
when he was a basketball coach and got a technical foul at a basketball game. Okay. This is the same Todd Whitaker who talks to who I absolutely think is brilliant. Love him to death. I've heard him speak several times and he's amazing. And, you know, he's the one who says you have to treat people well 30 times out of 30, not 29 times out of 30, because they're always going to remember that one time. And yet he came on and talked about a time where he lost his temper, got a technical foul. And, you know, he talks about how he went in the locker room afterwards and apologized profusely. And he said, I never got a technical again. But for him to come on and share that mistake, I was like, whoa, that's big. That is big. What is um, Todd Whitaker's Twitter handle? I'm trying to see. It's probably I'm... just, I think it's just Todd Whitaker, to be honest with you. I think it's, is it uh, Todd two... with two D's or one? Two D's, T-O-D-D, and then just uh, Whitaker, W-H-I-T-A-K-E-R. I think, but it's, I mean, I've had several guests oh, do that where they share mistakes right in their power zone. And it's like, whoa, you used to do what? And then you, <laughs> you hear it and you realize, okay, I don't feel so bad about myself now knowing that. I mean, that's, that was the hope. And in, in the beginning, I would share mistakes. And I don't do that as much now simply because, I mean, it's not that I don't make them. I make tons of mistakes, but they're not as, not as interesting. But I think in the beginning, it's important for the audience and for the listeners and for the people that I interview to know that I'm willing to be vulnerable too. And then once, once we're willing to be vulnerable, once your class this year that you have, once they see you being vulnerable, then you're going to make it a comfortable environment for them to be vulnerable. And then they're going to, th- then you start to build trust. And yeah. that's the amazing thing that I learned this past, uh, I don't know, a couple of months ago, I was listening to a podcast with Adam Grant and he was talking about it. I didn't know this until I listened to this podcast but he was interviewing a guy named Daniel Coyle. And the only reason I remember that name is because I have the book right here next to me, which I can't wait to read. But he talked about how we have it backwards. That Actually, vulnerability comes before trust and not the other way around. That once you're willing to be vulnerable with people, then you can build the trust. And I used to think it was the other way around. But yeah, the I more I think that. about it, it is true that you have to be gradually willing to put yourself out there and then a little bit more and then a little bit more. And then eventually, you know, like, like your class this year, by the end of the year, you're going to be sharing things with students and they're going to be sharing things with you that wouldn't have happened in the first week. But yeah. it's a process and it's a, you, you two and you two, you and your class will grow together. And I'm just, and just looking forward, forward to, to that, and that and accepting, accepting the fact that it is a process and that we just can't jump right jump into right being, you know, a, a big family and a big community. Um that's something that I, I look forward to to building and co-constructing with them. And I think that I was just listening to a podcast as well from Ponder Education. I, I totally forget, and I'm so sorry, Ryan, who his guest was, but she was talking about vulnerability and she was saying how when we're vulnerable as 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 educators, as as teachers, as mentors, or as coaches, no matter what role we play, it's not the fact that we need to uh, emphasize or celebrate the failures. It being vulnerable isn't necessarily being like, "Yes, look, I made a mistake. I'm vulnerable. You know, I'm not perfect." It's everything right. that comes after. You know, it's what you're going to do after. You know, uh, say I just blow a lesson that you're an activity that just doesn't go well. And I, you know, I'm super open with my students. Like, look guys, we're, 
accepting that this activity didn't go well, but what can we do now? What can we do next? How can we change it to move forward? And I think that's where a lot of the the growth and the trust kind of come comes from. Absolutely. I mean, as, as teachers, we often ask kids and expect kids to tell us everything, to open up and basically show us their whole heart and be extremely vulnerable with them, with us. But oftentimes we're not vulnerable with them. We're not willing to let our guard down and share things with them because we think, you know what, they're students and we should. Now, obviously there's some things we shouldn't share with them, but kids are very perceptive. And if they know that we're willing to share things that are authentically painful for us, they're going to be willing to do the same. I mean, I've had educators come on and talk about how students have shared with them that they had, I think it was a eating disorder. It was, some, it was something very serious. And obviously that teacher had built trust with that student enough uh-huh. such that this student was able to come to them and they felt safe with them. And that's hard and it takes time. It doesn't happen overnight and it takes, it takes time maybe a year. I Yes, absolutely. And I, I noticed on in your Twitter bio that the first thing that you have is that you're passionate about social and emotional support. And I think that it kind of goes hand in hand in, in what we're talking about, because once we have those, that trust and that relationship built with the students, that's where we can come in and support them. So what is it about social and emotional support that um, makes you so passionate about it? Like, how can you describe those those two words? And how does it, you know, play a role in your day to day as a you know, as admin? No, that's a good question. I think, I think it goes largely on, not unnoticed. It's, it's, it's starting to gain more attention. Okay. I think because usually we focus on math or reading or writing or language or arts, not so much arts, unfortunately, but we, we focus on those subjects, but we don't focus on social emotional learning and especially my focus is on the social emotional needs of teachers because i think teachers on the on the show that i host teachers aid with mandy fralick we compare it to the line that airline stewards and stewardesses always say in other words give you have to put oxygen on yourself first you have to give yourself oxygen before the small child that you're traveling with mm-hmm. and oftentimes we forget that and when we're in the classroom we completely exhaust ourselves and we fit, we feel like we have to serve the students at any cost. But what happens is then we end up getting worn out. We end up getting burned out and we don't, we don't realize that we're no good to the students and that our students need us at our best. And I think it's a profession where we're constantly reflecting, which is good, but we're also constantly noticing our own mistakes a lot more than celebrating our victories. For example, I, I talk to new teachers a lot and I say, you know, when, when you go home, what happens? And think about this this year as, as you go into your first year, because I still do this. I'm still guilty sometimes. You might have a day where you've taught six or seven hours and you had 20 things go well. Hmm. But when you go home, you fixate on the one thing that didn't go well. And it's okay to want to improve and get better, but a lot of times we evaluate our day based on just the one or two things that didn't go well, and it it, it tears us up. It's very difficult. Yeah. I <laughs> During my placement, that happened a lot, and I found because I did reflective blog posts every 
every week I published them. And after every day I had wrote down, you know, my comments and I was noticing at the end of every week I had lots of negative and mostly only negative things to say about my week. As in, I was just like you said, focusing on the one or two things that exactly not had not went as I would have liked or had not went as planned when, when I really, you know, was writing the blog post and was not trying to write a whole negative blog post was like, well, wait, what went well? And then, you know, then the long list came and I was like, holy moly, I really tried to shift and and change my mindset about two to three weeks into my 10 week placement because exactly I was, I was doing, I was doing that. that Yeah. I mean, we do that a lot more than we realize. I think I, I wrote a piece a couple years ago. I can't even remember the title or even in general what it was about, but I posted a picture I found online of a report card that had, I think, six A's and one F or one E, whatever it was. And I said, when you look at this, what stands out? And obviously the E or the F does. And because mm-hmm. oftentimes we would look at that report card and think, oh my gosh, that's horrible. Instead of thinking, wait a minute, this person got the highest grade they possibly could in six courses and one of them they didn't do well in. But it's our nature to think, you know, what we should do well in everything. And okay, now it's coming. Because I say, you know, for example, when we get older and we have our careers, we usually excel in one or two areas. We don't have to be good in 10. Mm-hmm. But when you're in school, you're expected to be good and excel yeah. in six or seven or eight areas. I mean, I said, you know, I think I wrote sort of a little sarcastic way. I said, you're not going to have Beyonce come over and do your plumbing. You know, you're not going to have KZ do your wiring. I mean, you're not, it's people have their talent or two, and that's good. But I think we're very difficult on ourselves, and kids especially are tough on themselves. And see, that's the thing. When they see us being tough on ourselves, they notice it, and then they realize that they've got to be perfect, or they feel like they have to be perfect. Yes. I, 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 I love that. So. Seeing as though you um, provide social and emotional support for teachers and new teachers, if you could give one, like your best piece of advice to new teachers and and not new teachers going into their first or second or 18th year of teaching, um, we'll we'll end with this. Uh, What would be your best piece of advice that you could, you could give them? From your standpoint, from your expertise. <laughs> from my expertise. That's a good question. That's, I think, find something outside of education that you're very passionate about mm. and make sure that you have to, you give yourself time for that. If not every day, at least a couple times a week. I often tell, you know, I tell teachers, you know, education is, is what we do, but it's not who we are. And I think that... That helps me become a better administrator and that I try to get to know staff members for who they are as people outside of school. Obviously, I want to, I have to observe their instruction and I want to help them as best I can do their jobs as best they can. But I think we get so caught up in it that we go home and then we get home, let's say, 4.35, 6 or whatever, and we think about education and then we read about education and then we dream about education or we have nightmares about education. And if we don't have some sort of passion outside of what we do, it's, it eats you up. It eats you up. And you have to have other things to look forward to. 
So I yeah. think I, I would say that because it's very important to have other distractions and you, you have to be able to turn your brain off. And that is very, very difficult. That's something that I've had a hard time with over the years. And I guess Tim Ferriss calls monkey brain. In other words, it's sometimes my brain just won't stop. But whether it's a sport, whether it's a book club, whether it's knitting, whether it's your volunteering for organization, whether it's podcasting like you do, I mean, it's good to have something else besides your job that you're passionate about outside of your job. Mm -hmm. I wonder if it's only teachers that get so invested in their, you know, domain, right? Because I haven't even began, begun my first year teaching yet. And I always am on, you know, Twitter doing the, the Twitter stuff. My podcast is mostly education based. Like I live and breathe education and I haven't even necessarily started my, my full days of teaching yet. So that it like I love what you said there because I need to and we kind of touched touched upon it before we press record on the podcast um just taking care of yourself and and I think me it will either be running or or doing yoga because those are two things that just really help me get back into you know a a nice space and in my head especially so Signing up for for yoga classes, making myself accountable, saying it on the podcast here. I think that those are all things that are going to not only help me, but help help other teachers as well. So, John, I just want to thank you for sharing all of your insight and expertise tonight. I think that there are a lot of really neat takeaways from this episode that um, my listeners are are going to appreciate, and I want them to go and check out your podcast. Um, and that they can learn from from your mistakes and other educators' mistakes. There's just so much, so much learning to be done. So thank you for sharing uh, all that with me tonight. Oh, it's been it's been my honor. And you you have, you have to promise me one thing after tonight's interview. Uh oh. <laughs> Go I'd ahead. Like you, after this first year, I want you to come on my bed and share a mistake with me. I I felt like that was going to be your request. <laughs> you knew that was I I knew it was coming. So. What, what I love about this, though, is that I have a whole year to think about it and to and to make the best oh, yeah. mistake I can to share with we you. We were screwed up. That's a big time. I hope so. Like, I look, you know what, John? I look forward to the mistake that I'm going to make that I will be able to share with you. How about that? That sounds good. That sounds Ho- good. Yeah. Hopefully it'll become your, your favorite mistake. And when somebody asks you, you can say, well, Sarah Lalone, she, she did this thing there. She did this one mistake and it just, you know, number one on the list out of 120. Yeah. And she predicted it. Set the goal high. See, I'm a, I'm a high achiever. <laughs> <laughs> That's good stuff. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. It's my honor. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Kesara Sara. I look forward to continuing to learn from one another. So what did you think of this episode? Let me know by leaving me a comment in SoundCloud or sending me a tweet to at Sarah, S-A-R-I-H, Lalonde, L-A-L-O-N-D-E-E. And you can also subscribe to my podcast on iTunes under Kesara Sara. And hey, did you know that Kesara Sara is a proud member of the Voiced Radio Network? Check them out at voiced.ca.